0: Good morning, Arcadia. How are you? It's good to see you. Uh, if you are new with us, or you've been coming maybe in the last month or something, uh, my name is Frank, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. Let me tell you a little bit about Redemption. You may be wondering why we like to say our location in our name. Uh, the reason for that is that uh, Redemption is actually one church with seven congregations, and so we always include the... Location in, in our church name. We're about to be eight congregations. We're we're gonna uh, we're in the process of planting Redemption Tucson right now, as well as many of you know I have one wildcat down here in the front, so that's good. Um, so uh, we are one church with eight, uh, seven soon to be eight uh, congregations. Uh, we believe that uh, all of life is all for Jesus. We're gospel centered and outward focused. Uh, and, and really, Redemption was born three and a half years ago when three churches, Arcadia being one of them, three churches came together to form Redemption. Uh, pretty soon after that, a, second, a fourth one from down in a, a Apache Junction joined us, and then we've planted other uh, locations as well, and we've been growing ever since. Uh, So we just believe we're better together. um, We sharpen each other, we hold each other accountable, and and that's a good thing. And one of the things about being a multi-congregational church, we're not a multi-site church, we're a multi-congregational church, each one of our congregations has a local elder board and a local lead pastor that actually is the lead communicator in that church. So we don't We don't pipe somebody in on a screen, but rather uh, we have different people every Sunday in each of the congregations preaching uh, the message. Now, we do go through the same material uh, on Sunday morning. So right now, all of the redemption churches are are in the book of Romans, going through the book of Romans as we are verse by verse. And you heard Amy this morning read that paragraph, verses 9 through 13, from chapter 12. That's where we're going to be for the next five weeks. We're going to be in that paragraph going literally verse by verse. We are slowing down to, some of you would recognize this, a John Piper pace now in Romans. We're actually just taking one verse every single Sunday. And so that's what we're going to be doing. We've been in Romans for a year and a half. We're going to finish it uh, by the time Advent starts this year. Uh, so we've got a little less than half, of, half a year to go. Uh, last week I talked about how now that we're almost uh, three-quarters of the way through Romans, Uh, We would love to hear from you about uh, what God's been doing in your life during this time that we've been discussing Romans for the last year and a half what has he shown you what has he revealed to you What has the Holy Spirit helped you with in Romans uh, many of you have been through the book of Romans before is there something new that that God has taught you in, in the midst of all of this uh, not because of what we've taught necessarily what we want to do is hear what God is doing in your life with this material if you're somebody who's predisposed to that if, if you're wired that way you like to write about things and all that I'm inviting you to email me with your thoughts about that. I love to hear people's stories. I'm a big story guy. When I sit down with people, one of the first things I'll do is I'll say, tell me your story. I just want to know your story. I'd like to know the story of how God is working in your life through this. I, I mentioned that last week. A bunch of you started already emailing me, and it has been wonderful to read those emails. I've now got a Word document where I'm sort of cutting and pasting and putting them all together together. Uh, all the responses together as well i don't know what i'm going to do with that eventually except maybe sermon illustrations later so you help me write sermons that's cool but um, I, I don't know what i'm going to do with it but but I, but i do have that so if you're interested in doing that you have from now until admin actually you can write any time but like i said we're in romans and two weeks ago we started kind of a new section of romans we got into romans 12 Uh, that that major transition in verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12 from Paul uh, sort of espousing doctrine and theology and preaching his gospel, uh, telling us about the sovereignty and the grace of God and the the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And then he transfers into uh, the application of everything that he's taught. And And he starts that with these words out of Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'm gonna read this every single week that we're in Romans 12. Because everything that comes after Romans 12, 1 and 2 flows out of Romans 12, 1 and 2. So even what what we look at today comes from this. So Paul writes, therefore, in in light of everything that I've said, chapters 1 through 11, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, I want to stop here and just make sure that we're really clear on this. When, When Paul says, by the mercies of God, what he's literally saying in the Greek is because of all that God has done for you, because, because of, in God's sovereignty, his, his love, his grace, his mercy for you, because of all that he's done for you, because he has saved you through his Son and has filled you with his Holy Spirit, because of all of this merciful stuff that he's done in these first 11 chapters that I've told you, because of that, here's what you're to do. You're to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. In other words, you are now, because you are gospel-centered, you've been saved by the good news of Jesus Christ, you're to live a gospel-centered life. All of life is all for Jesus. There is not one nook or cranny that should not be affected or changed or influenced or redeemed and made new by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, this is the second part, Of of what it means to to walk as a Christian, to live as a Christian. He says, as a result of this mercy, you are no longer to be conformed to this world. You're no longer to look at the patterns of this world, the systems of this world for your salvation, for your pragmatism, for anything, for, for your good. That is not what you're to do. You're not to conform yourself to the standard of this world, but rather now you are transformed. Because the Holy Spirit is living in you. The resurrected Christ has given you a new mind, a new eyes to see. You are transformed by the renewing of your mind. And now you're going to know exactly what God's will is, His good and pleasing will. You're going to be able to discern and test things by the power of the Spirit in your life. And so Paul says, as a result of the gospel, you're going to live a sacrificial life with a renewed mind. And then everything after this, chapters 12... Through the end, just flow from this thesis statement that Paul gives us right here, and and, and in these next uh, thirteen verses that we look at nine through twenty one, the the overarching theme is love. This is what Paul is going to do with us here. Is many many scholars simply subtitle these nine verses? I'm sorry, these thirteen verses as love. This is. Paul's spirit-guided definition of how to live in and manifest love as the overarching Christian ethic, the overarching Christian walk. And again, it flows from verses one and two. And and last week, we got started in this a little bit with verses three through eight, where we talked about how clear you, you need to have clear thinking from a renewed mind about yourself, clear thinking about the church, and clear thinking about how to use your gifts. And now, equipped with that clear thinking, you're gonna express your gifts through this love. And you heard a lot of that in what Amy read in those five verses, okay? And and certainly in these 13 verses, uh, verses nine through 21, we see shadows of the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, this ethic that Paul teaches us in these 13 verses is not necessarily new to the Christian faith. It's just Paul's way of saying what Jesus has already said about love. It's Paul's way of saying it in his context of writing to the Roman church. And some of you like this stuff, what I'm about to say. Some of you like this stuff. Others of you are like, ah, forget that. Just get past that and tell me what it says. And so I'll, only, I'll try to only say it once. But one of the things that I think is interesting in these 13 verses is that there are 11 present continuous imperative verbs in these 13 verses. An imperative verb is like a command or an exhortation or a mandate. This is what God wants you to do. And the fact that they are present and continuous means that you're not just supposed to do this once and go, okay, I've got that mastered, but rather you are to do it once and keep on doing it constantly as you live, as you walk. You're never done with this process of walking in this ethic of Christian love. And what one scholar said is that this means that God seeks for the believer not so much one single worthy act of goodness, but rather a continuing life of pursuing Christ's likeness. In Romans 8.29, Paul says that the reason God has done all of this for us is to conform us into the image of His Son. And so now this ethic of love that he talks about in chapter 12 is one of the ways that we are sanctified and brought about and living into our identity as Christians and conforming to the image of His Son, the image of Jesus Christ. We're becoming more Christ-like by living out this ethic of love as Paul exhorts us to do it. And it's not just one single worthy act. I I, run into, I used to have this view myself. Even, you know, I'd do one good thing and I'd kind of go there. I'm done with my good stuff for at least a couple of months. Let that stand on its own for a while. Let people admire that act of of goodness there for a while, and then when that wears off, maybe I'll find something else to do. Paul says, no, every day you get up, you preach the gospel to yourself, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and you go and you continuously always pursue this ethic of love. And this can be done, of course, only by the power of the Holy Spirit and from knowing his word and from living in covenantal community with other Christians. Those are the three things that we, we desperately need the power of as we do this. We can't live in this love that Paul calls us to do by our own power. It needs to be by the power of the Spirit in us. And we can't do it without knowing God and knowing what His will is, and we find that in His Word here. The revelation of God poured out on these pages, and so we need to know His Word as well, and we need to study it and read it. And then we do it within Christian community as we sharpen each other and hold each other accountable and encourage each other and love one another and forgive each other in the midst of that. In other words, we do it rooted in the gospel through a gospel lens in our lives. And so for the next seven weeks, we're going to spend on this issue of love from chapter 12. And so today, we just look at it at verse 9. That's it. And verse 9 is very simple. It's got two principles and three exhortations. Verse 9 is, let your love be genuine. It's In the Greek, it's only a couple of words, genuine love. Let your love be genuine. And then how our love is supposed to be genuine is we're supposed to abhor evil and cling or hold fast to what is good. And what's interesting about that is those two verbs, abhor and hold fast, are actually participles. So really, the Greek flows like this. Uh, Let your love be genuine, abhorring evil and holding fast to what is good. In other words, those second two statements define the first. And so we look at two principles today. Let your love be genuine, and genuine love is discerning, and we look at three exhortations. So here's the first principle and the first exhortation. And by the way, the big idea today is that genuine love hates evil and fastens itself to what is good. So here's the first principle and the first exhortation. Our love is to be genuine. This, this short sentence, genuine love, stands as the central theme, the thesis statement for these, this entire 13-verse section. In other words, love is the one ethic that fulfills all ethics in the, Christian lo- in, in the Christian walk. And here's the key, as long as it is a genuine biblical love that Paul is talking about here. And so we're going to have to define love. We have so many competing definitions of love in our world today that we're gonna have to stop and spend some time here. And, the, and we have to be very careful defining love, and the first thing that we have to say about it is this, we can never oversentimentalize this love. Love is not some mushy, gushy, feel-good type of thing. That's not the biblical love that Paul is talking about here. Boyce says it this way in his commentary. Genuine, sincere love is not some mushy emotion that embraces all, forgets all, and requires nothing. I'm going to take some of you back to 1970. Some of you can't go back there because you weren't alive then, but you might be aware of this sentiment. In 1970, a, a movie came out called Love Story. Ryan O'Neill and Ollie McGraw. Oh, I, heard, I heard a groan over here. It's like, oh, yes. Oh, it was just... And, and the, big, the big theme from that movie, does anybody remember it? That's it, you got it, Steve. And I didn't plant him either. He's just old like me. <laughs> love means never having to say you're sorry. Oh, yes, that's, lo- that's true love. You never have to say you're sorry. And people were just so, oh, they were so excited about this. It's also a lie straight from hell. <clears throat> it's bogus. I tried it once. I sinned against Jackie and I said, well, big deal. Love says never, ha- never having to say you're sorry, so build a bridge and get over it. <laughs> Slept on the couch for a week. It doesn't work. Listen, Christian love means that you own your junk. You own your stuff. You got to confess your sin. You got to say you're sorry. You got to approach people and you got to reconcile and restore and do all of that hard work. Love never mean, means never having to say you're sorry. Is, is just a way of trying to make life easier, and it stinks. It doesn't work. Love is not some mushy emotion that embraces all, forgets all, and requires nothing. So the first thing we need to do is actually discuss what love it is that Paul is talking about here, because there's actually four Greek words for the word love that we translate as love. Here they are. Number one is storge. That's used in the Bible. Storge has to do with family affection and care. It's sort of a familial love. Then there's philia, philia is like uh, friendly camaraderie love, it's like brotherly love. So you get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Then there's eros, which is sensual love or sexual love or romantic love, that is not the love that Paul is using here, okay? He doesn't say let your eros be genuine, all right? And then there's agape love, which is unconditional, sacrificial, other-oriented love, or some people call it God love. And that's the word that he uses here. Now, he's gonna use storge and philia in, in other areas in this paragraph, in this section. But right here, when he says, let your love be genuine, he's saying agape love, this sacrificial, other-oriented, unconditional-type love. And, and it's interesting because prior to the New Testament, those other three words for love were used way more than agape was. And then, and then Jesus and Paul and John came along and they sort of started appropriating this agape love for Christian love for God's kind of love and I want you to notice this I I know there's a bit of a duh factor to this but but we need to remember this love is always in the context of relationship and community it's always in context with some other person and that's the point we want to get across its other oriented Jamie Rasmussen this week uh, spoke here in this room on Wednesday at a lunch and he defined love this way I thought it was really helpful love is not a feeling An action or a doctrine love is a relational entity and it is an everyday commitment that's agape love that's biblical love and so what does it mean that that love should be genuine the word genuine can also be translated sincere and the word sincere means without flaw or crack Um, in the ancient Latin uh, we get our English word sincere from the ancient Latin, two words, sinicere, which literally means without wax. So let your love be without wax. We're done. Got that figured out. You feel better about that now? Okay. In ancient times, it, when we probably do the same thing now, but especially in the first century, the way they would take inferior marble products or pottery products or, or uh, statues or, or anything like that and they would take those that had flaws and cracks, what they would do is they would melt wax and they'd put them into the flaws and the cracks and they'd smooth them over and try to color them the same as the surrounding product. And, and then they would present this product as without flaw or crack, but it's filled with wax. And so as I read, I found out that they actually had inspectors that would go around and inspect pottery and marble and, and all this stuff. And if, and if they could discern that it was without wax, that, that, that these flaws and cracks hadn't been been covered up with the wax, they would stamp it sinissere, literally mean without flaw or crack. And then you could buy with confidence these things. It's like my wife has, uh, um, in addition to her job, she she has an antique booth in one of the antique malls in Phoenix. So she's an antiquer. She's out all the time looking for this stuff. And so she knows how to inspect this stuff and look for these flaws and these cracks that have been filled in very cleverly. Okay? So you kind of get an idea of it from them. So... So a sincere person who's loving sincerely is one who lacks pretense. It's somebody who's not pretending to be someone else. In other words, he or she loves not for the purposes of manipulation or personal gain. And all of us have been victims of that kind of love in the past. Amen? And every one of us at one time or another has perpetrated a, quote, love like that as well. John Calvin wrote hundreds of years ago. This is really helpful it is difficult to adequately express how ingenious almost all men are in counterfeiting a love which they do not really possess again we we live in a time now in the last thirty years when Something called image management has exploded as an industry. You can't run for public office anymore without hiring an image management consultant, paying them hundreds of thousands of dollars to help you with your, with your campaign, help you make sure that you dress appropriately, eat appropriately, say the appropriate things, make sure your hair is the right length, and they manage your image. They're, they're trying to make you into something that you're really not that will appeal to almost everybody. Image management is another way of saying, I'm presenting a persona to you that is not real, but I want you to buy or accept this fake persona because it will benefit me. One of the Greek lexicons explained this word gen- genuine this way. It's love without hypocrisy. It's love without a mask. In fact, the word is hypocritus, which is the Greek word that we're talking about here. Which we, From hypocritus, we get this, the English word hypocrite. It's love that's not hypocritical. In the ancient Greek theater, if you were an actor, you were called hi- a hypocritos. You were, you were a hypocrite. That's what you were because you wore a mask. Paul's saying this is a love that does not wear a mask. It's a love that doesn't play a role. I'm going to keep pounding on this for another minute or two. Uh, in 1959, a guy named Irving Goffman wrote what many people would consider a, a very important book for the social sciences. And if, you, if you're... I'm going to be working on a, 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 a graduate degree in any of the social sciences, anthropology, sociology, psychology, communication. Eventually, you're going to probably read this book. It's, the name of the book is The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And what Goffman did was he's, he's a dramatist. He sees the world as, as a series of stages that we are on. And and that we play a role in every stage that we're in. We have a persona, a role, or a self that we play depending on every performative situation that we might walk into. We analyze the decorum and understand how we're supposed to behave. And so we go to a funeral and we don't behave like it's a hockey game, like that. But but also in in the midst of those roles and personas that that we're sort of putting on as we walk into these various places, we're also putting on airs, we're putting on Uh, Things about us that aren't necessarily true in order to try to manipulate others and benefit us and it's called dramatist theory it's a way of looking at how life is lived and how we communicate to each other the other interesting thing about dramatist theory is that it's also assumed that there are places where we are front stage and places where we are backstage in our life we have we actually have backstage areas in our life so an example would that be would be like for me this afternoon My wife and my two daughters are in Chicago. She's moving them to Chicago for school right now, so I'm going to be alone in the house, so I'm going to get to be in my living room. It'll be like backstage. Nobody else will be around, so I'm going to put on my fat pants and my 15-year-old T-shirt with the holes in it, and I'm going to get a bag of Doritos and a Diet Coke, and I'm going to live large, and it's something that I never want any of you to see, but that's what I'm going to be doing because I'm backstage, and backstage you can be who you really are a Dorito-eating, Diet Coke-drinking freak. That's what you can be if you want, or whatever else it is. One of the most interesting quote backstages is inside your car. But what we fail to remember is that we're not always so backstage as we think when we're in our car, and so we get exposed for who we are sometimes when we're in our car. We get angry and we commit road rage. Suddenly, we're front stage. Or you don't have tinted windows and people look in your car and see what you're doing in the car, which can be very embarrassing. It's called the invulnerability factor, which isn't even true. Here's what Paul is saying. Your love, front stage and backstage, is supposed to be exactly the same and it's supposed to be rooted in the gospel filled with the Holy Spirit, informed by the gospel, understanding who Jesus is and how He loved us by going to the cross and being raised from the dead for us. It shouldn't be an act. It should be whole and integral, not fake. Paul even tells Timothy in 1 Timothy that as Christians, our love comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a genuine faith. Now, let me just slip into my Kenneth Burke mode for just 30 seconds and also say, this is also not what love is. I'm going to define through the negative now for just a minute. Love is also not sentimental. Love is not sentimental. I've already said that, but I just want to make sure we get it. Love is not emotional and sloppy. Love is not based on on only our feelings. How many of you have made all the best decisions in your life when you're just doing it off of feelings? My life's been just the opposite. The worst decisions I've ever made have been just off of feeling. When I'm angry, or there's lust, something like that. Uh, Tom Schrader says it really well. He says, as a Christian, you need to remember that what you know trumps what you feel. We know the God of this universe and His Son, Jesus Christ. What we know should trump what we feel. So it's not sentimental. It's also not excusing. Love is, genuine love is not excusing. It's forgiving. Yes, we forgive, but it's not excusing. We, we hold each other accountable. And it's also not enabling. One of, the, one of the most challenging definitions of love today is the person who says, I never want to tell anybody else what they're doing wrong. That would not be loving. And so what we do is we see people whom we say we love engaged in dangerous, unhealthy problematic behavior and we say hey well if it's gonna if it makes him happy who am i to say anything to him you're the person who loves that person we need to be able to figure out how to say it and that that's what leads us into our second principle and our second and third exhortations which is the second principle is that love is discriminating love is discerning And the exhortations are abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. So statements two and three define what genuine love is, that we must approach love in a discriminating and discerning fashion. And here's one of the things that we really need to get down straight. In order to love well, we must both hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Now, a lot of times get into a lot of conversations like this. I've been guilty of doing it myself. We like to look at things on a spectrum, on a, on a linea- in a linear way on a spectrum. And so we say, well, if abhorring evil is down at this end of the spectrum and clinging f- and holding fast to what is good is down here, I- I- Paul's calling me to find that sweet spot right in the middle. That is exactly what Paul is not calling us to do. He's saying that we have to be all in at both ends of the spectrum. We have to be all in when it comes to abhorring evil and we have to be all in when it comes to holding fast to what is good. And so that second exhortation is abhor what is evil. Abhor that which is bad, wicked, malicious, and slothful. What does that look like? What does it mean to abhor something? Well, the Greek word for abhor in the text is apostaguntis just sounds menacing, doesn't it? Apostaguntas. I guarantee you if you had a mob of people running after you and they were all screaming, apostaguntas, you'd be scared. I have no idea what it means, but it sounds frightening, okay? This is the only place in the entire Bible that this word is used, right here. And it literally means to detest, to be repulsed and horrified by. So an example of, of how we should think and feel when we abhor evil. A couple of examples. One would be, let's say you're a brand new police officer. You've been trained. You've gone through the police academy. You've done everything that you're supposed to do, but you've never walked in yet on your first forensic scene of a horrific, graphic, violent murder. And now is the day and you walk in on your first scene like that. Somebody's been graphically, horrifically murdered. Okay, and you walk in and you see that scene and you see that for the first time, all the training in the world is not going to prevent you from, from recoiling against that and having a visceral reaction to that. that. That's what this word apostaguntis means. Here's another way of looking at it. Uh, Ricardo from Tempe came up with this. I really like it. Think back to the last time you had food poisoning, okay? And then think about three days after you had the food poisoning, somebody walks up and asks you if you want to have that food that, you, that gave you the food poisoning. Hey, you want a burrito today for lunch? And you're just like, you're retching, okay? Right? You don't ever want to eat another burrito again, okay? That's what apostaguntis means. We're horrified by it. The challenge, though, is that we're, we're so desensitized today by all of the things really that god says are evil we're no longer horrified we're no longer outraged desensitized meaning that that just subtly and slowly but with great care we've been moved away from god's view of life and into a view that the culture endorses um and 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 we don't even realize it's happening my brother my older, richer brother has a place in San Clemente. It's a, it's a condo right on the beach in San Clemente, overlooking the beach, and just to the south of his condo is the famous San Clemente Pier. Anybody been there? I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It's a great beach. Um, and, and every time uh, he invites Jackie and I and the girls over, we say what? Yes, we go. We go to San Clemente and we enjoy the beach. And one of the reasons it's a great beach is it's, it's one of the best body surfing beaches you can find in California. I'm not a regular surfer. They surf there as well. Anything with a board scares me, but I like body surfing. I've been doing that my whole life and it's a good place to body surf. One of the reasons it's a good place is because there are some subtle but strong currents in the ocean there. And every time I go over there, I forget as I run out into the water to go body surfing, I can be out there for only 20 minutes and then I'll look back to try to find Walter and Jackie and the girls and I'll be two or 300 miles up the coast and not even realize it. It's so subtle. You don't even know you're drifting down that way. That's what's happening with our... We're just drifting. Mounts says it this way. "To, To love God is to regard evil with horror. Unfortunately, familiarity with a culture that is shaped by the forces of Satan has lulled too many believers into a state of general tolerance for whatever dishonorable practice is in vogue at the present. We are to abhor evil because it is the enemy of that which leads to Christ-likeness, the stated purpose of God's sovereignty in Romans 8.29, to be conformed to the image of His Son. In Proverbs 6, God specifically tells us not six, but seven things that he hates. Verses 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. That's, that's another way of saying pride. The sin of pride. Doesn't like the sin of pride. A lying tongue. And hands that shed innocent blood. He hates a heart that devises wicked plans and feet that make haste to run to evil. That's the, that's the person that, that sees evil happening and, and, and says, I want to be a part of that. I want to participate in that. I want, to, I want to do what's going on over there. He hates a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among the brothers. Those are the seven things that Paul says there that he hates. And, and we struggle with all of those things. And we are to abhor those things. Genuine love is never soft on evil. It's never soft on evil. John Stott said it this way, love is not the blind sediment it is traditionally said to be. On the contrary, it is discerning. It is so passionately devoted to the beloved object that it hates every evil which is incompatible with his or her highest welfare. And yet, even as I say that, I know that when we practice abhorrence, it can backfire, right? It can backfire on us. Some of us... I, I, I battle with this all the time. We become so zealous for behavior modification that we lose our zeal for Jesus and, and we forget the gospel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change their behavior. Get out of the way, gospel. Get out of the way, Jesus. I am here. And I know how to get them to act right. And we, and we, we lose our zeal for Jesus. You see, abhorring evil does not mean that we abhor the sinner's. And and the gospel is the only thing that allows us to love the unlovely. It's the only thing that gives us the power to go up to people that we really don't want to be in relationship with in the first place and say, you know what, the gospel draws me to you and calls me to love you, and I'm going to do that. And that means that I'm going to say some things to you that might challenge you, but I want to do it in love. Uh, I spent five semesters at ASU in the early 2000s uh, working on my communication degree. And, and while I was there those five semesters, each semester um, I had the pleasure of sitting in on, on a, a guy's preaching. Um, I think some people referred to him as Brother Jake, if I'm not mistaken, but he would, once a semester he would, uh, he would go and stand outside of Hayden Library and he would just yell at people. He would do what he called street preaching. Anybody familiar, Anybody remember Brother Jake? Anybody familiar with him? Am I the only guy that? Oh yeah, John, you remember this guy? <laughs> yeah, okay. Now, now here was the challenge with with Brother Jake, and I listened to what he, I would stand there and listen to him, and I couldn't argue with the truth of anything that he was saying. What he said was true, But, but I honestly never got the feeling that anybody who was standing there listening to him felt loved by him. And I, and I offer that critique knowing full well that I have also critiqued other people with the truth of God's word in ways that were totally unlovable. That's a tough thing to do. That's one of the challenges that we have with, with abhorring evil. When we lose our zeal for Jesus in lieu of the zeal for correct behavior, we lose our faith and trust in Jesus. And who do we begin to trust at that point? Us. We begin to trust our power and our wisdom and our strength and our ability to be able to figure things out and then that becomes a fool's errand to go and do this without God. And there's a couple of other challenges with abhorring evil. Abhorring evil is tough in a culture that struggles with calling evil, evil. You can walk up to somebody, somebody you're in relationship and know really well and you can say, listen, this is a problem. This is, this is damaging to you and it's sinful and, it, and it's unhealthy. And what do they say? They'll say, how dare you who do you think you are saying that to me and you get a couple of those and you kind of go i don't know if i want to do that anymore and then abhorring evil is also tough when we really don't abhor our own evil when we look at our sin and we say i really kind of like that and it's not as evil as all the other people's sin either and so it becomes difficult. It, it's, it it feels judgmental to define evil, and we like some evils. And so practicing what I would call biblical, biblical abhorrence calls for something that we talked a lot about last week, and that is to think of ourselves with sober judgment. Think of ourselves clearly and sanely. Think of ourselves through the gospel lens. And that doesn't mean that we can't uh, abhor evil until we become perfect. Uh, that That is also... A wrong understanding of, of, this, of this principle is that, well, I really can't go out and abhor evil until I myself am perfect. That's not it at all. But it does mean that we are humble enough to keep in mind our own shortcomings as we go. Here you go. A Christian is someone who goes about doing good while repenting. As we are going, living the gospel centered life, we are also going in a repentant attitude and manner at the same time. Paul says it this way in in Ephesians, be angry, but do not sin. And then the last exhortation is hold fast to what is good. That word hold fast in the Greek literally means to be glued to and to keep constant company with. Uh, You know, in the New Testament and and even in in, um, uh, Genesis, but especially in the New Testament, the Greek word uh, uh, spouses are to cleave to one another, right? Right? Husbands are to leave their mother and father and cleave to their wife. That's the same word right here in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. It means to cleave to what is good. Be glued to and keep constant company. Quick little rabbit. Spouses, how are you doing with that? So how does hold fast to what is good work together with abhorring evil? How do you, how do you meld those two together? Well, for one, we might say this. We might say that if we're constantly keeping company with what is, what is good, if we're glued to what is good, we're never going to be tempted by evil. We, we won't have to encounter evil. We won't have to encounter darkness. And that may be good in theory, but it's not totally realistic. And it's also not call, what, what, what we're called to do as followers of Christ. Only holding to what is good and never... Going anywhere else doesn't help us to cast light into the darkness. Rather, it means that as we are going, as we are serving, as we are loving, as we are shining the light of Jesus, we are doing it under the power of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, we do not love defensively. The minute you become defensive about your love, you're not loving anymore. We are to love offensively. We don't avoid darkness in order to keep our love pure, but rather as we go into the darkness, our love is pure because it's a love that comes from Christ and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the gospel. So what are these good things that we are to cling to? I came up with three and then thought, that's, that's enough. If we could do those three marginally well by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're actually going to be doing really well because they're so comprehensive. Here's the first one. We should hold fast, cling, be glued to, be in constant company with the gospel narrative. The story of Jesus Christ. That goes back to Romans 12, 1. In view of God's mercies, because of God's mercy in your life, because of his love for you, because he sent his only son to live the perfect life, die the perfect sacrifice, forgiving you of all of your sins and then being resurrected from the dead so that we would have eternal life and and redemption and reconciliation with God and and, and share in the inheritance of Christ. Because of all that, the gospel narrative, we are to live this way. We are to cling to this gospel narrative. That's what's good. Keller says it this way. The cross is the very picture of hating what is evil and holding fast to what is good. Jesus experienced the fullness of evil in order that evil be destroyed and not destroy us. So that's the first thing. Cling, hold fast to the gospel narrative. The second thing would be God's word. Cling, hold fast to God revealing himself in these pages, telling us who he is and and what he wants, what his will is. Know his word, study his word Imbibe his word. So, the narrative of of the gospel, God's word, and then the last thing, cling to the spirit filled life. Which, if you're a Christian, you have that. You have that. That's your identity. You're filled with the spirit. Now, you need to just live into that. That's your identity. Paul talks about the spirit filled life in, in Romans chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. It's all about how we live in the Spirit. And that is our identity already in Christ. So cling to the gospel narrative. Cling to God's Word. Cling to the Spirit-filled life. And really, everything else kind of falls into place if we do those things. Let me wrap up with this quote from Michael Shea. I, I think this is a good way to summarize what we've been talking about this morning. Shea writes... We need to understand our battle with sin in the context of the command to love. The moral imperative of the Christian life is not just stop sinning, but pursue love and you can't do one without the other. We are frequently frustrated in our struggle with sin because we oppose it in such a self-centered way. Think about that statement. We are frequently frustrated in our struggle with sin because we're trying to do it in a self-centered way. That's one of the problems that we have. And so we hear ourselves talking about my struggle and my sin and my victory and my defeat and my sanctification and the way my sin makes me feel bad about my behavior and myself. And we are stuck in a quagmire of selfishness. We need to think rather about how our sin keeps us from loving others and hurts others and grieves the Spirit of God who loves us with an everlasting love, a love that sent His Son to die on our behalf so that we might have reconciliation with the Father.